This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. And two authors. Mm, we oh, have. Let's get stuck yes, in. Yes, today with me I have Kate Mildenhall, who is a writer and podcaster. Her books Skylarking and The Mother Fault have won countless awards. She's with me today to talk about her much-anticipated third novel, The Hummingbird Effect. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa and Jan. (laughs) The Hummingbird Effect interweaves four female narratives that span the years 1933 to 2181. So why such breadth? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, And who knows the answer to that? I started wanting to write a story of 1933. So the seed of this novel was um, the true story of the Anglis Meatworks um, over in Footscray, where uh, a number of my family members live. Uh, And I, as I kind of became obsessed with with the Meatworks, I did some research and found out about a strike that happened in 1933 against the introduction of the chain system of slaughtering, which came in and kind of changed the the face of how abattoirs worked forever. So I was really obsessed with that and I started writing this story of of the women who worked in the meatworks in 1933. But then of course, uh, as I was writing, we entered the period of pandemic and all of my Google alerts about abattoirs and meatworks started coming up with contemporary stories about meat workers who were being impacted by COVID um, and by their working conditions. And so this novel that was about working conditions, about labour strikes, about invisible labour, kind of exploded into something that had to incorporate different periods of history as I went along. Okay, amazing. And I love those four worlds that you've created. So you've explained the first one, I guess, which Mm. is the meatworks in Footscray. Yeah. Can you just briefly touch on the other three for us? Sure. So in 2020, um, we meet Hilda, who's an 86-year-old woman who's in an aged care residence when COVID hits. Uh, And this is really a story of her remembering her life as a a scientist, Um, but also, I suppose, in a way, trying to bear witness to what we went through as a community uh, and particularly what health workers went through uh, during that period of time. So it's a fragmented narrative in in 2020. Uh, In 2031, a little bit ahead, um, Lara and Kat also live in Footscray. Lara's a a singer whose voice has been damaged and she decides to take up work in an Amazon-esque kind of warehouse called the Want Warehouse Mm. um, because of the uh, health and wellbeing package attached to her employment which means that she can get IVF and uh, so poignant yeah, yeah for her and her partner and then throw forward to 2181 the story of Mazanonix who are two sisters who are living in this uh, post-apocalyptic world two young young sisters and trying to navigate the group they find themselves in and how they're going to survive I've got so many questions for you because it's <laughs> such a such an enmeshed and such an incredibly rich world. What I really loved was the, the the tone and how the writing style differed for each world. So, how was your what was your process for this? Did you was it the dialogue because the dialogue was so different? Did you attach was your way in through the dialogue? I'm just guessing. That's a great question, Lisa. I think I I often go in through character, but one of the strongest voices for me, you know, one of the other kind of slim narratives that that threads them all together is this voice of the river, um, and that was that was a very strong touch point for me, and I kept coming back to that. That was like a, a grounding kind of force for the novel, um, and then each of the 
women in the different stories, partly because of the time, had very strong and distinctive voices. So, for instance, Mazanonix in 2181 have this kind of mashed up version of an Australian English where a lot of words are mushed together. And I had so much fun with that. I really played with that a lot because I was trying to imagine what we might bring forward into a world where you know, most of the population is gone and possibly the different kinds of ways we can imagine a a new future. So that was really fun playing with that. And then, you know, WhatsApp messages, all the things we associate with those lockdown times, particularly for Melbournians, that came through in Hilda's voice too. Yeah, it was was so inspired. Uh, The novel is named after the hummingbird effect principle, which explores how a small innovation can trigger transformation in future unrelated realms. At what point in your writing process did you link these narratives without oh, giving away anything? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, a great question. Yeah. So as I said, I you know, I intended just to write the historical story, but but when I exploded the novel, I was really conscious that I just had to get it down on the page. So for probably a year, I wrote the narrative separately. And I kept in my head this idea that I'd heard um, David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas, talk about when he was writing that novel, that he, he wrote them all separately and then he wormholed them together. Together. So I had a real confidence that I knew because of the, the material that I was writing about, I knew that they were linked and I knew that I was writing stories of, of women's kinship. Um, so I had a confidence that they would link, but it wasn't until I went away on an extraordinary residency in Devonport and Aotearoa last year and I finally kind of connected them all with some of those light bulb moments <gasps> that you only get. Don't you love uh, that? Yeah, Isn't once it? or twice. Yeah, The snick, apparently yeah. someone says. Yes, yes. Oh, that's a great word. Yes, yeah. <laughs> So the linking of these four narratives for me speaks to the rhythm of the world on a macro level, ticking time bomb of human existence, how human relationships have contributed to and resisted the global crises we currently face. Do you feel responsible as a novelist to touch on these huge themes? Great question. Um, One of the things that happened when I handed an early draft of the novel is that my wonderful um, publisher who who ended up moving, so wasn't the publisher in the end, said, you've tried to write about everything you care about, Kate. And at one point when I exploded it, I thought, yeah, well, I... I have and I want to try and cram it all in. And and in a way that idea of unions and uh, resistance and and women particularly working together, that, that came through in a way in terms of the ethics of doing it. I suppose as a novelist we can never ask that our readers, you know, come with us. We can't tell them what to think. And, and really it was my curiosity about how we got to now and how we might go forward that inspired a lot of those questions. Yeah, you can really see that in the text as well. So was there a genre that you didn't cover? (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard because, I mean, from the writers you speak to on the program too, you would know that it is hard for writers to jump around in terms of genres. So my first novel was historical fiction. My second was more speculative. Mm -hmm. This one, I I really wanted to go back to historical fiction. This, the true story of the meatworks was so alive, had so much heat for me. Um, But I also wanted to push it. It makes it harder to pitch it to a publisher I was just about to say what a you know what an elevator pitch that must have been so hard to sort of condense that so for those people who don't know 
an elevator pitch is where you sort of have to encapsulate your whole book into one line. Yes. And that must have been seriously difficult. It was, and I'm really bad at it. And lucky for me, this book was already contracted, so they only could say no (laughs) and throw it out. But I do think that there is this new, really exciting kinds of books and and some of the ones that inspired me were um, Jennifer Egan's The Candy House, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle, which kind of go between historical and contemporary and and sometimes pitch forward as well. Ah, okay. So I was going to ask you actually, I I wonder, is writing historical fiction similar to sort of writing speculative or futuristic fiction? I find historical easier because... There's, I'm often following a timeline, you know, mm, a time, yeah. the, the strike happened in, in 33. I had a timeline. I had newspaper records. I had the archive there for me and the same as that's what happened with my first book as well. Um, whereas the world building that you need to do for spec, you can do anything. Yeah. You can follow any path. You can mm. go anywhere with it. So um, I find the, the limits in a way of, of plot and time and place with historical easier. Having said that, I think the, imaginative possibility of what you can do with world building and that ethical responsibility. How will I build a new world? You know, what what can I do with that is very exciting for me. Mm, Absolutely. My next question, in 2031, gender bias is still a thing, Mm. like 100 years before it. I feel that you touch on a known but under-articulated concept, uh, procreation bias. Mm. So, which... I think is the disadvantage placed on those who bear and support children. Mm. Were you inspired here by hope or fear or both? Oh, yeah, a little bit of both. I suppose motherhood, the bearing of children, how systems support or don't support that is is something that goes through all of the stories for the 2031 for Lara and Kat I I was really obsessed for a while with looking at workplaces that do offer this kind of egg egg freezing and, and IVF as part of their package which is you know sounds great right but it is also something to that workplaces do to keep women in their job for longer and and there's a lot of questions about what happens there with legalities and ethics you lose the job you leave the job what happens with your eggs um so that you know i pushed that a little bit further forward it's fascinating yeah, yeah to try and kind of explore where we might go with that what opportunities that gives women but also mm-hmm. how terrifying that can be as well yeah it's that sort of neoliberal sort of ethical amnesia if yeah. you like and 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 exploring that whole the whole possibility of where we're headed yeah which is a little bit frightening which brings me to the next question which is wanted to predict the future in in some of those those the the latter two worlds so the 2081 mm. and the 2031 was there an intention of yours to predict the future? I think it's, you know, it's it's so impossible. Some of the things I think I try and stick really close to the science. So the climate science, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, people often say, well, how did you, you know, imagine this world? I'm like, I, I read the reports, you know, I read <laughs> the, the climate reports or looked at the maps which show where the coast is going to be in Australia mm-hmm. in 50 years or 100 years. That's just pure science. Some of the other ideas I really have enjoyed recently the work of Kim Stanley Robinson, particularly in the Ministry of the Future for the Future, where he 
throws right forward past the collapse or the apocalypse um, and looks at the possibilities for imagining a, a, a world in a different way. So in Ministry for the Future, he looks at, and in, in some of his other work, a new possibility for a financial system that might not stuff up the world in, in the same kind of way it is now. So in terms of that, you know, I think it's about imagining other possibilities rather beyond than... Beyond capitalism. Yeah, beyond capitalism. Oh like what would that look like? Yeah. And, and that to me is much is exciting and I think what so many of the um you know younger activists also are asking us to look at and I suppose in the idea too of the algorithm which is kind of looking at possibly uninventing um different innovations from the past the question I, I wanted to ask is well what if the chain hadn't come in what if the slaughtering of one beast was really the way that we kept this how would that change what we eat how we operate and those little tiny changes that have happened across history that really did send us in a totally different direction the possibility for now is we can make those tiny changes now and be somewhere new mm, really does question the whole notion of culture and what it means to have built up that culture and mm. how perhaps we can break that back down in mm. in your um th- thematically in your book is really fascinating do we have time to read a little bit no i'm no, sorry we're done, we're done. <laughs> we are well thank you so much kate for being my guest today on published or not it was wonderful to have you thank you so much lisa well kate and lisa were talking about historical fiction and that's where we're headed what do you know about vincent van gogh i've learned a lot more about him through a most intriguing character Sylvia Kwan has done all the research and written a fascinating book, Vincent and Scene. Vincent had a one-room apartment with bedroom, kitchen and studio all together in Schenkwijk, Netherlands. Now, Sylvia, why there? (laughs) Well, it's extraordinary that um, Vincent had this other life as a young man, that little that we know so little about and that's what I wanted to explore. I mean, we're all familiar with his French ears and that infamous incident <laughs> regarding the ear mutilation and it was a surprise to me that he even had an intimate partner um, and lived with her and her two children uh, in The Hague and um, and and was trying to um, launch a, a very you know, nascent uh, career as an artist. He had only just started a few months earlier. So he had a lot going on. He was in his late 20s. He had a woman and two children, and he was trying to be an artist. So I just found that mix really fascinating. Um, it wasn't that lonely time where he's in the south of France, sort of slightly going, you know, losing, starting to lose his mind. This was a young man's, you know, rite of passage um, that I wanted to, to, to explore. So he'd given up uh, work as the, an art dealer in his family's business and a pastor at a coal district. And he was wandering the streets, 1882, on a cold winter's night in The Hague. Mm. He came across a pregnant Klesina Hornick. She was 32 years old. Mm. She had a young child with her, Maria. What did he do? Well, it's very sketchy, the details. I mean, we only have his version of the story, but he insists that he rescued her and her daughter um, when he wrote to Theo about the relationship. I mean, he knew he was in trouble um, embarking on this affair. Mm. So he withheld that information from his brother, who was his financial benefactor. So he had to dread very carefully about revealing this development in his life. 
And so he cast the whole thing in a very religious, good Samaritan terms. You know, he could not walk past this creature in need. And, of course, mm. she was a prostitute. Mm. So you did a lot of research into the lives of sex workers mm. at this time. Mm. And, uh, you know, they, you, as you've said, they, they were paid more than sewing or laundry work. They were paid in bread, <sighs> half a loaf of bread. Mm. And you write about how mm. she was able to disorientate her mind from the physicality of sex. Mm. Well, I just imagined if you're having to sleep with men in the rough... In, in winter, I mean, how do you cope with that? <laughs> so I just thought, well, you, you have to be somewhere else in your mind. I mean, you can't do anything about you where you are physically, but surely you can control where your mind might be and maybe that was the only way she could cope with that. Vincent mm. paid her for modelling, mm. for posing. Mm. She can't believe that she could get money for just sitting. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes others paid her to Mm. listen, and this is a quote from the book, Mm. she could relieve ache in their groins, not their heart. Mm. So what was it that Vincent saw in her? I don't know if we're, you know, many of us are familiar, but, you know, I just remember young men in their late 20s and it's a time when they're looking for love in a serious way, you know, and... Um, he was lonely and struggling, I think, mentally because his careers had all folded. Um, and I think she was a creature who was just not wandering along the street, but someone who was in dire straits. Mm-hmm. So he had no choice but to step in. And I think he saw in her suffering something almost religious, something that took, took him out of himself because her suffering was so much greater than his. It, that's what I imagined. And so it gave him a purpose. Um, but also I think he was attracted to her physically. He, she, her face reminded her of, of the Virgin Mary, as, as I've said in the book. And to see someone struggling and suffering more than yourself, I think you, you forget about your problems then a little bit. And you know? what do you think, what did she see in him? Well, I think she was utterly just shocked by this encounter someone from the slums Mm. uh, being actually cared for by a bourgeois gentleman. I mean, those two worlds just did not mix, you know, not like nowadays, you know. They just, they were just really, (laughs) you know. Mm. So for a woman like her to be in the company of such a man would have just been astounding. But I think as they got to know each other more, which I think I do sort of cover in the book, that... She realised that he didn't fit into that world either, you know, into his world. And so I think there was that sort of sympathy and empathy about, you know, their situations and uh, that transcended their backgrounds. Yeah, but Mm. it's still living in sin and even from the very, very poor, it was her mother who was saying, you know, this is terrible, this is Mm. so wrong. They're hardened people, these, you know, people who, who make... Something out of nothing, you know. Well, mm. Vincent was there when she gave birth to mm. the baby that mm. um, Willem, that 
wasn't his. Mm. And she saw him through his hospital time when he couldn't paint or mm. couldn't draw mm. when she had given him the clap. Mm. Gonorrhea. <laughs> yeah. Gonorrhea. Mm. There was talk of marriage. Mm. How was that seen by their families? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can imagine, it's, it's, uh, it would, it, it, from his family's perspective, it's, just, you know, like unimaginable, really. You know, as I think I said in the book, you know, that Sien wasn't even fit enough to mingle with the family servants, you know. Mm. And I think from her family's perspective, they thought it was the biggest joke. You know, they thought it absurd that she would even entertain that notion. So there were, there were really two outsiders in many ways. <laughs> You know. well, this is a quote from the mother in the book. They mm. look down on the likes of us as no better than rats that run down the sewers. Mm. Mm. Well, now, part one, we mm. get this whole feel about Vincent from Sien's point of view. Mm. Part two, mm. we get the visit from Theo. Now, mm. I think anybody who knows about <clears throat> the story of Vincent know that he's, he's got a younger brother, Theo, mm. who is the one that gives him allowances, mm. regular allowances. Mm. <clears throat> and in fact, I'm going to get you to read from page 199 okay. because this is when Theo comes to uh, Vincent's house. Mm. He sees him. Managing to conceal his disdain, he offers her a curt nod. After removing his hat and hanging it on a hook next to Vincent's, he turns back and steals glances at Sin, trying to reconcile this first impression of her with the woman his brother had written about so lovingly. All Theo can see is a haggard woman who appears much older than her years. There is not only the lifeless graying hair and the stoop in her shoulders, but a face and body made gaunt by a life he imagines she could no more have wished for than the two bastard children she bore. Yes. Oh, God. Was not impressed, shall we say. <laughs> no, no. Theo was such an interesting character too, you know, because he supported his brother, he loved his brother, but he was also very much attached to his parents and mm. their situation. And he was constantly straddling <laughs> the two sides to his family that, that were often in, who were often in conflict. Mm. During this visit, he also encourages Vincent to try paints and gives him extra money to buy paints. Up until then, what, what was the medium he was using? Well, this is something that was really quite a, an interesting revelation um, about him for me, was he drew endlessly. He just could not stop drawing because he believed it was the foundation of all art, you know, and he was really mocking of artists who just dabbed paint because that was the prestigious medium. If you're an artist, you have to be a painter in that time. But he really saw the mistake of that and he went against the grain why he fell out with so many people he's he actually wanted to draw real people from life whereas the the academic training at that time was you drew from plaster casts so you had hands of plasters of hands you drew or feet or mm. bodies and Vincent it didn't move him enough he didn't respond to this white powder casts he responded to real people and he was all about conveying that emotion emotional response to his subjects so he really needed um, real life models which was a bit radical I mean our academies had life drawing classes but as I mentioned in the book it's a very formal sitting they're all wearing suits and they're all you know and it just didn't suit his temperament and his his vision for art you know so drawing was the thing he needed to get right. And so he drew her endlessly and it was cheaper than paints. 
you know. Look, through the book he describes some of the drawings he did and mm. then you were telling me that you actually went to see them. Yes. In, in, and, uh, you know, the, some of them were... Oh. It was incredible spending a day in the storage room of the Van Gogh Museum up close with all of those drawings he did of in The Hague that I describe in the book. I mean... You almost at the end want to just pick up a piece of paper and start drawing yourself. I mean, it was that infectious. <laughs> and his meticulousness. I mean, this is a man who just moved with such frenetic energy. But then you see his work and it is meticulous and flawless and beautiful. And I actually got to see his letters and the script is just so beautiful and controlled and it was so amazing. Gee, I can't mm. imagine the control mm. for the writing, you know, because he's such a frenetic person. But Vincent is also worried about how to paint. Oh, and, he's in, you know, you write about him losing sleep and and then he goes out. Now, anybody who knows a painting by him can see these daubs of paint. And I'd like Sylvia Kwan to read again from page 220 about one of his first experiences of going out painting. And you'll, I think you might even be able to feel or imagine the paint. He returns in the evening in a state of disarray but jubilant. His face and hair are streaked with sand and paint, so too his clothes. He tells her of the roiling sea, the leaden slurry of the clouds like old snow, and the angry gale that whipped up quite a scene, reminding him of something from the Old Testament. You should have seen it, he exclaims. Everything was flapping, dancing wildly, and the ocean was nothing short of a monster foaming, churning, covering everything in a briny spray. He finds that he is always consoled by a storm, he tells her, by nature at the height of her fury, a force more untamed and impassioned even than him. When his ears fill with the howl of the wind and the roar of the sea, he is becalmed, soothed. Bewitched by the scene before him and protected by June, he managed to work through the rain and the wind before eventually taking refuge in a nearby inn so he could finish the painting in peace. Look, you can see the grains of sand still stuck there, he says with glee, pointing to a corner of the oil study. I have caught the mood of a perfectly nasty storm, don't you think? But he is not interested in an answer. One must wage a war with paint, wrestle with it, if one is to make it submit to one's will, one's eye. He rattles on happily as he hangs his effort in the studio before standing back to admire it. So all of these daubs of paint going in, you can just imagine the colour and the thickness. Of course, that causes another problem. Yes, because he's spending so much on paints. And I think given that we're all familiar, a lot, many of us are familiar with these South of France paintings, you, can, you know how thick and impasto style mm. that, that is. And, and it is said that he wasn't even aware the amount he was using. He was just looking for the effect on the canvas, you know, so that was his... May name. So, mm. no money, hunger for mm. many, many days. And, of mm. course, with uh, Paul Sion, who's got this postnatal depression mm. and no money, so her mother and her sister come to live with them too, mm. a very noisy house. Mm. And uh, quote from the book, Family life cured my loneliness, but I have to admit it has made me crave solitude. Mm. And for Sion... Uh, Another quote, the previous 18 months have allowed her a life beyond anything she could ever have wished for. Yet despite the unquestionable ardour of Vincent's love, his company has proved altogether 
too exacting, almost beyond bearing. So what happens? We're not going to tell them. (laughs) This is what the book's about. Just a fantastic book. Really has given me another insight into Vincent van Gogh. Fantastic. Was Vincent van Gogh a good Samaritan or self-centred artist? In Vincent and Sin, Sylvia Kwan has written about a prostitute who became his model and lover during the time of his own artistic development. Thanks very much, Sylvia. Thank you, Jan. Oh, dear. So we've covered back in the past the and into the future. <laughs> yeah. But okay, well, that's it for us today. Thanks for listening. Thanks. See you next time. See you next time. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.